Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Get Connected with Nina Del Rio, a weekly conversation about fitness, health, and happenings in our community on 106.7 Light FM. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on Get Connected. Helicopter parents, tiger moms, stage moms, you know what someone means when they say that. Are you one? Do you know someone who is? Our guest today is Julie Lithcott-Hames, a self-proclaimed anti-tiger mom and former Stanford University dean of freshmen, joining us to talk about her new book, How to Raise an Adult, a provocative manifesto that exposes the dangers of helicopter parenting and sets forth a new alternative philosophy. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Julie. Nina, thanks so much for having me. So this book is based on your own experience as a college dean. What kind of trend in student-parent relationships were you seeing? What was bugging you? Yeah, um, I was dean of freshmen at Stanford for 10 years, from 2002 to 2012. And in the course of those years, we really began to see on our campus, as did administrators on every campus around the country, the rise in parental involvement in the life of the university or college. So we had more and more parents each year who would come to campus, you know, with their sons or daughters and stay involved um, in the life of the university. So they would, uh, they wanted to ask questions, they wanted to solve problems, they wanted to make choices, they wanted to advocate for their sons or daughters. Um, and you know, in the in the early years, it seemed a little odd um, because parents hadn't previously had much to do on a college campus um, other than maybe pay the bills. But over the years, it moved from odd um, to concerning when we realized that with the rise in parental involvement was a decline in the capacity of our uh, young adults on our campus to kind of be and do and think for themselves. They were quite content to have their mom or dad doing the heavy lifting for them, um, telling them in what direction to go and so on. At the same time as I saw this on my campus and heard this happening on other campuses, I was raising my own kids. They're now teenagers, but my aha moment came when they were 8 and 10, and uh, I'd just given a big talk to Stanford parents of freshmen about trust the, trust the university, trust your son or daughter, please go home. And then the next day I came home for dinner at my own house and discovered I was still cutting my kids' meat. And they were 8 and 10 years old, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I could end up being one of those parents who can't let go at 18 because I'm still fostering dependence on me instead of really nourishing my kids' budding independence. So that was kind of my aha moment that made me realize um, the connection between childhood and, um, you know, the skills I wasn't seeing in my college students. I wish you could give us a detail or two because there's so many great details in this book to kind of give an idea when you just talk about someone perhaps, you know, going to bat for your kid. It doesn't seem wrong to go to bat for your kid. But in the book, for instance, you talk about parents as concierge, some of those, those little detailed things that maybe go over the line. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, we want our kids to be able to be their own advocates one day. And if we're constantly doing it for them, then they never learn this skill. So, um, for example, one of my students um, at Stanford came to see me with his parents um, on the first or second day of orientation um, in my advising office. Um, they said they wanted to talk about um, 
how the kid could get involved in doing research in chemical engineering on the campus. And so I turned my gaze toward the, the kid, and I said, hi, it's nice to meet you. You know, um, I'd love to know what kind of experience you've had in this field and any experience you might have already had with research so that I can really direct you appropriately when it comes to doing that work here at Stanford. And the kid smiled and didn't say anything, looked over at his dad, who took a deep breath and with great pride began telling me about his kid's prior experience with, you know, chemistry, engineering, and research. You know, this kid was clearly accustomed to his dad kind of touting his own capabilities for him. I just kept redirecting my eye contact to the kid, trying to signal, like, look, it's your turn now. You're 18. You're the college student. This conversation needs to be between me and you. It's not the kid's fault, but it's clear that childhood was, you know, had led him to that point. There's somebody who's listening who has a kid about to go to school or already is in school, and they're thinking, ding, I'm doing something wrong in front of a dean, for instance. Beyond academic qualifications, what kind of student are universities looking for? You know, students are looking for individuals who are curious, who are hardworking, who, you know, know the value of an education, want to strengthen and grow their own minds and selves. And, you know, inherent in that growth is, you know, to be self-aware, to have a sense of oneself, what matters to oneself. Um, so colleges and universities are looking not for little robots who've been programmed to be or do a certain thing or who've been test prepped up the wazoo in order to have a certain GPA but can't have a conversation with anybody. You know, they want individuals who can make contributions to their campus community, you know, who can, who can learn and do on their own, who don't need mom or dad, you know, to still tell them what to, what to do. Something else you'd like to roll back is kind of the overuse of, of the bully label. What's the problem with intervening in your kids' battles? Of course we love our kids so fiercely and we can't bear the thought of a single harm coming to them. You know, that's just sort of inherent in us as parents. However, when we constantly go to bat for them, they don't learn the skill of doing it for themselves. And they've got to be able to stand up for themselves. And, and yeah, oftentimes in life, something something mean, something painful will happen in life. Those things are sort of inevitable. We parents these days think we can protect our kids from all of that and prevent all of that if we're just constantly vigilant and always hovering over their lives. But, you know, there's a short-term, you know, win of that. They get soothed, they get supported, but they never develop that long-term skill, that thicker skin, that toughness that says, hey, that person was just a jerk. Boy, you know, that shouldn't have happened, but I'm okay. So, yeah, we've started overusing the bully label. I, I have a story in my book of, uh, of an educator here in San Jose who had parents of a preschooler complain to him about bullying in the preschool. One kid bonked the other on the head with a plastic shovel, and the parents of the quote-unquote victim were calling the other kid a bully. I mean, that's just really misusing the term. We're speaking with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Her new book is How to Raise an Adult, a provocative manifesto that exposes the dangers of helicopter parenting and sets forth a new alternative philosophy. You're listening to Get Connected on 106.7 Light FM. I'm Nina Del Rio. So in the second half of our, our conversation, let's talk about the other path that you, you really want to advocate for, stopping with the overscheduling. What's the value of, of playtime and, and what kind of play are you talking about in the book? So interestingly, the, the folks at NASA Ames, you know, that are um, hiring engineers and rocket scientists, you know, they've said we're less interested in people from the quote-unquote best colleges, and we're more interested in people that tinkered as a kid, you know, that had some unscheduled time to just play with a box of things they found in the garage. You know, they, they learned to tinker. They learned to make something out of nothing. You know, this is what childhood used to offer, you know, a big basket of Lego bricks um, without a preplanned um, uh, you know, resulting object. 
you know, is a much better toy than that pre-programmed Lego box that says, here's how you build a helicopter. You know, giving the kids kind of the tools to make their way, giving them the tools to create new things, you know, um, that's, that's how they learn. That's how they flex their, their imagination. That's how they become creative. That's how they learn to solve problems and think outside the box. And free, unstructured play is the only place that that happens for kids. We're speaking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, and her book is How to Raise an Adult. You, in the book, you also have a list of life skills, and you've arranged them by ages 2 to 3 through 18. So you're talking about when to learn cooking, cleaning up after themselves, uh, preparing for a job. And I wonder, what about understanding money? So many parents never really have that conversation with their child. Well, yeah, and here's where I will um, celebrate someone else's book, The Opposite of Spoiled, by New York Times money columnist Ron Lieber. He really is clear that we've got to have conversations with our kids about money. You know, we think it's impolite to talk about money. We think, um, you know, somehow magically they should come to an understanding of how money works, how you earn it, how you save it, how you keep it, how you grow it. Um, It doesn't happen magically. It has to happen, you know, by sharing with our kids how we manage, you know, money and by giving them, whether we give it to them for chores or we give it to them as an allowance or we have them earn it through jobs, you know, they've got to start interacting with money and appreciate, you know, how, how it grows and, and how you lose it. Included in your alternatives, too, to overparenting is to look for opportunities to put independence in kids' in kids' paths, for instance? Well, I think whether it's crossing the street or making a meal uh, or talking to a teacher about a problem, um, there are four steps. Uh, first, we do things for our kids. Step one is first you do it for them. Step two is then you do it with them. Step three is then you watch them do it. And step four is then they do it on their own. Of course, the amount of time that elapses between each step will vary depending on the skill you're trying to teach and how old your kid is and what their capabilities are. But as parents, we need to know our job is to get them to step four. Our job is to put ourselves out of a job and raise our kids to be independent. At every step and at every stage, there are opportunities Um, to nourish this budding independence that our kids want, by the way. Little kids love to be given responsibility. If we've over-parented and over-protected, by the time they're tweens and teenagers, they'll be quite resentful if we decide to stop helping. But even if they're resentful, we have to say, you know what, we should have been doing this all along. It's time for you to start learning this. Now get up, do it. As a parent, I wonder, though, what has been the most difficult thing for you to hold your tongue on? You know, you can see it's not going to go well, but you, you want them to learn on their own. Yeah. You know, my daughter was doing a science project uh, with two friends, and they had written up their results. And, um, you know, I could see from the chart that they developed that they had overlooked a major concept. And, you know, I was trying to figure out how to point it out to her in a way where she could listen and appreciate, um, you know, what I was saying and be motivated to change it. Um, You know, she's also very artistically inclined, and I knew the presentation itself, the look and feel of it mattered to her. So, you know, I made the point, and she really was quite upset. You know, Mom, it's done. How can you tell me this? This isn't helpful. And I said, you know, I know you appreciate the value of hard work. I see that there's an error here. If you look through it, you'll see it yourself. It's up to you what you want to do with it. But, you know, I'd be remiss in not pointing it out. You know, I walked away at that point. I was so, I wanted to fix it myself. (laughs) But I knew, you know, my kid has to learn this. And if it's her teacher who says, you know, well, your your grade is a little bit lower because you got this wrong, you know, that's, that's a lesson that she needs to learn. I was relieved the next day to see that she figured it out, corrected it herself, figured out how to, you know, re-glue a new sheet of paper over the error. 
Um, and she, she got there on her own, but boy, did I have to bite my tongue. There's a time, I think, even for young, for younger kids, perhaps. Your kids are a little older now, I believe. But for knowing who your kids are communicating with, who they're online with, how do you balance independence with being aware? You know, we, there's so much in society we have no control over, but we have a lot of control over the values in our own home. And, you know, I talk to my kids about trust. I talk to them about the dangers that are out there in the world and that we can't, you know, always be there for them, but we want to instill in them a sense of, you know, good judgment. And so we know we can trust them to make the right choices when we're not around. You know, so, you know, with respect to things like curfews, we're very strict. You know, my my rising junior in high school has an 11 p.m. curfew on the weekend, and if he's home three minutes late, he's going to hear from us. We're not happy, and he's, there are going to be consequences. Why? Because we want to know if it's 11, it's 11, and not a minute later. Um, and, you know, with technology, um, we're very, we just we sit down with them with their technology. We ask them what they're doing. Um, you know, we, we're interested in who their friends are. You know, we talk to them about the dangers that are out there. But we do believe that, you know, they've got to develop the skills themselves. Um, I can't be there for them. I've got to, I've got to inspire them, you know, to want to be good people, using good judgment, you know, and and winning the respect of their parents. I mean, that's I guess the ultimate, the ultimate tool I have is, you know, my parents, my my kids want my respect, and you know, I'm happy to give it when they're when they're re- behaving well. And that I think works well for our last question. It, it comes up in the book, and I think it was a fascinating point to make. How does the way you parent shape your child's dreams of, of their own future? Yeah. The way that I define overparenting is some combination of overprotection, overdirection, or too much handholding. And the overdirection piece is really what others call the tiger mom piece. It's a parent's sense that, you know, we know best about what it takes to succeed and we'll tell you what activities to pursue, you know, which courses to take, what you may and may not study, and so on. The trouble is we think we know best, but boy, is that an arrogant approach, you know. It's not that everybody needs to be in finance or law or medicine or engineering or whatever profession a a parent thinks is best. It's on each one of us as individuals to figure out who we are, what we're good at, what we love, and then to craft a course of study, to craft a career at the intersection of those things. So it's terribly arrogant for a parent to say, you know, I want for you to be a neurosurgeon. You as a parent may want that. Go live your own life. Encourage your kid to make the most of who they are. If they're inclined toward the science, is great. But if they're not, don't force it on them. Love the kid you've got. Embrace the kid in front of you. Find opportunities that will, you know, allow them to develop the skills and passions you can see budding in them, not the dreams you have for them. Julie Lithcott-Hames is a former Stanford University dean, and her new book is How to Raise an Adult, a provocative manifesto that exposes the dangers of helicopter parenting and sets forth a new alternative philosophy. Thanks for joining us on Get Connected. Thank you, Nina. This has been Get Connected with Nina Del Rio on 106.7 Light FM. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. If you missed any part of our show or want to share it, visit our website for downloads and podcasts at 1067lightfm.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.